All right, there I am. All right, so good morning. Let's try this again. Hey, I just uh, it's been an uh, awesome start for the series. Did you have a great Easter? I pray that you did. I pray that it was great. In fact, um, we've been thinking about various religions and talking about different pathways. And uh, one of the times I got to really engage in some of that conversation was about 12 years ago. I got to go on this trip to Berlin with the youth ministry. And on that trip, we went into a mosque and we connected with two men who were the, the tour guides of the mosque. Pretty interesting uh, guys. And they, they kind of connected with us pretty quickly. Is that uh, They wound up saying, hey, let's take you on a tour. We'll show you the woods of, um, of Germany, of, the, of Berlin. Berlin. And we're going like, yeah, this is awesome. And I probably should have thought better about it. But, but we got out there and we started roaming around. We, and eventually started finding this was way more fun than I anticipated. We were talking about acid rain and all this weird stuff and just in, enjoying the different vistas and pictures of things. And eventually we really started discussing and dialoguing theology pretty deeply. And came to realize, hey, we agreed on a bunch of different things. First of all, we both agreed that there was a God. We didn't have to argue with each other over that one. We both agreed that there was sin in this world. We both agreed that 9-11 was horrible. We both agreed we needed to avoid the Germans who were bathing naked. That was like all... <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty impressive how they would move us around the different lakes to various places. But uh, there was also differences that we had to work on. And uh, obviously, we disagreed on the Trinity versus their God, who was one as Allah. We disagreed on the conversation over how you dealt with sin. We believed you needed to sacrifice. They just thought you could do some good works and kind of clean the mud off. And in, in the way they explained it, um, we talked about the idea of of where we were going to heaven. In fact, it was that last day, that last hour. Standing there at the train station, the U-Bahn was coming in. We were going to take it off to uh, the center of the city. They were going to go off to the other side, to, to an opposite direction. And as we stood there, he, you know, he told us, I remember Andy and Khalid standing there, and they told us, hey, look, we really think that you guys, we will see you again. We'll see you in paradise. We don't know why Allah would not allow you in there. And I'm like thinking, yes, this is, I got one pass. I'm good. And then he goes, where did you say that we will be? So he flipped the question on me, and I'm going, awkward. You know, it's just like, uh, where am I going to go with this? And, you know, everything in you wants to go where that last lady went, right? Oh, faiths of many houses and God allow us all in and all this stuff. And so when you get into that, that's that conversation. I think our culture wants to say that. We in our hearts want to say all pathways go to the same place. All religions go in the same direction. And so we just are like, oh, I want to say that. But we've been asking this question as we started last week. Do they really? Do they? I mean, when we really begin to examine the different religions and examine what their problem is and we'll examine what the solution they offer, do they all go the same place? In fact, we, we discussed it like these various vehicles. You know, a, a plane takes you across a sky path. It's dealing with a different problem than a car. A car is going to take you across uh, the ground and on a road, and it's going to get you much better than a plane is across uh, a town. You know, a boat is only going to get you across the water paths, and obviously... The rocket is only going to get you through a space path. And so last week, we took the plane and we examined Christianity and talked about the idea there was only one way out. There was only one way out of that Wamana place that we had visited. And that was in the same way as Christianity, there's only one way out. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the one who takes our sin, that's the problem that keeps us from God, and he reunites us with God on earth so that we can know him now and ultimately throughout eternity. And then we asked, well, how do we know that? And we examined the historical evidence of both skeptical and believing scholars for the evidence of the resurrection. 
And um, that fell strongly, I believe, um, ultimately it came down to that it shows that Jesus rose from the dead, and hey, if the guy can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, you know, we go with that guy. And so as we look at this, we're also looking at the other religions, because we're also examining the idea of, hey, if, what happens if they, what their sol- solution is to their problem actually proves out to be true? Is it something that then we should be following? And so we're going to look at Islam, and I believe the rocket uh, is a good illustration of Islam. They, they view themselves as the ultimate of the religions, the final, like the, like the rocket. It kind of ascends to the point where you've got to be a rocket scientist to put it together. You've got to be the best of the best pilots to fly this thing. And so this is the idea in Islam that they have come to the, the culmination, the ultimate end of the faiths. And so as we look at this today, we're going to be looking at our three questions again. We're going to be looking at what's the problem that Islam talks about, what's the solution for Islam, and what's the proof? And as we examine these, I hope that we'll begin to kind of begin to see what what the vision and the viewpoint of Islam is and begin to really see whether or not we, we should consider it as something people should follow. Now, I get it. This is weird because I'm a pastor of a Christian church and I'm about to talk about another religion, namely Islam. And it's like, well, what authority do you have to talk about Islam? It doesn't matter what authority I have. As long as I talk in an English accent, you will all believe everything that I tell you from this point on. So from now on, I will continue to speak in this accent for authority. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Actually, what I did is I went to their websites, I went to their information, and basically I took the things that I'm going to deliver to you from groups like Why Islam and Islam City and these various Muslim apologetics and theology groups that are out there in English to bring believers in and bring people into believing in Islam. So I'm going to use their arguments, I'm going to use their stuff, so that you know I'm not just making things up and go like, straw man, knock it down. And so what I want to do is use their arguments as best as I can. (laughs) As we examine this though, what is the problem then Islam is, is saying that they're solving? And if you were to look at the various sites and you look through their Qurans and their teaching sections, it's basically the understanding of that in Islam, the problem is ignorance of God's way. The problem is an ignorance of how to live and submit to Allah. Now, their God is, is a Unitarian God. It is a one God, only one person. They call it Tawid, which means it is simply one God. He's unity. He, and unity is an important aspect Because they believe what has happened is people have ignored the unity of God. They've ignored that God is one. They've ignored that he is the creator God. And they've begun to corrupt and do their own things. And so they are not submitting to God. And we are going to find ourselves in judgment. And so heaven and hell are in play in Islam as well. And so how do they solve the question of ignorance becomes very important to their concept of ignorance. You see, they really believe that we all have ignored what Allah has brought. In this pamphlet, Who is Jesus?, at the end, after they've talked about their, that they believe Jesus is a Messiah and that he is the, he's a great prophet, they say this, every nation and every people from the Aztecs to the Greeks have received a prophet or a messenger from God. Jesus was the last of a series of messengers sent to the Israelites, but they consistently strayed from the path of surrender to God. In other words, the Aztecs, the Incas, you name the people group, they once had a religious leader who rose up and taught them the teachings of Allah, but the people either ignored it, walked away from it, and corrupted it, and so they literally walk in willful ignorance to Allah. They don't know how to please God anymore. And so this is the problem. 
The solution then comes in another term. It comes through a man named Muhammad, and it comes in his teachings, which is the Quran. Now, Muhammad was born roughly in about 550, 560-ish AD. They're not, those are always kind of questionable dates back there, but in mid-500s, and he died in 632. Now, when Muhammad lived, he proclaimed that he was hearing from Gabriel the messages from God. And as he would enter into these times, these trances or whatever it was, he would speak forth these very sayings. This, the word sayings is a surah. And they would eventually these surahs would be memorized by his followers. They'd be written down. And he believed this was Allah speaking to him to give forth the teachings that humanity was to follow. And so as they wrote them down and memorized these kind of poetic statements, they were then to live out from those poetic statements in the life of Muhammad the prophet and begin to walk in this way. Now, at first, these are all just put in the minds of people. They're remembering them. They're an oral culture. They're not a literate culture. And eventually, as writing is created in Arabic, they begin to write down the various Quranic statements, the surahs. And one of these, um, one of the caliphs, the first caliph after Muhammad, I'm missing his name, so I'm not going to try, but um, he was the first to bring in all of the people who knew the various surahs, and they would write down all the Quranic statements, and they bound them in one book, and they called it the Quran, the saying, and basically it is the perfect word of God. It would again later, they would, it would start to spread out and people would be using different dialects. So another man named Uthman, who was the next caliph, regathered it together, made sure it was one official document, only the ones that had two or three witnesses made it in, and everything else that didn't have any attestation, they burned and destroyed. And so that's how they came to a pure and clear Quran. And this Quran is the word of God, literally word for word God's statements to humanity. So if you will submit yourself to the teachings of Muhammad and you will obey and submit yourself to the Quran, you will begin to learn how to live life under the submission of God. The word Muslim means one who is submitted. And so in their concept, when there's ignorance, you must submit yourself to Allah and to his teachings, and you will then begin to live out the life Allah intended. Now, in this way, then, all of their life is unified under a religious vision. The Quran will teach you, along with the Hadith, by the way, uh, you'll hear about a Hadith a lot. And a Hadith is the traditions and the stories that are laid out about Muhammad's life. And they interpret the Quran through the Hadith. So the Hadith tells you what Muhammad did when this Quranic statement was made. And so, boom, you get what it means. So these two go together. The Quran, however, is the word of God. The Hadiths are traditions. And so as you read these two things, you come to understand that there is a way to live as a family, as a father. There's a way to run your economics. There's a way you should dress and a way you should eat. There's a way you should do warfare. There is a way that you should do business. All of these things are controlled and led through the Quran. It is a full-orbed religion in the sense that it touches every aspect of society and thought. And so they believe if you submit yourself to this, you will obey God in a sense of submitted to him, and you increase your chances then of entering into paradise. And this is critical because as they begin to work out this, they will, you will find that, man, Muslims are some of the most devout and sincere people you ever meet. 
If you have any friends who are Muslims, they are very, very kind people. They're very focused, though, on their faith. They love to talk about their faith, and I would say that they are, they are super sincere. I remember students wrestling with this when they would meet other students who are Muslim because they would take their Korans and they would put it on top of their books. They would never put it under a book. They would put it on the top shelf to make sure that it was in the highest place of the house. They would never touch it without washing their hands because you didn't, you didn't defile the Quran. It is God's word. And then kids would be like, oh man, they're so much better. Like they'd watch us take an old mangled up Bible that's been torn and, and falling apart. And we're like, toss in the trash. And people are like, you can't toss a Bible in the trash. I'm like, it's a collection of ancient manuscripts that was translated into English and printed at Tyndale. I mean, this is not like the Holy Bible and the whole, it's holy and it's concepts, but time out here. The Quran is different. Don't ever in your conversations equate the Bible and the Quran. They aren't the same. In the mind of the Muslim, the Quran is far more like Jesus. Jesus is the word of God to us. And he comes and, he does, and it's Jesus that we follow. It's Jesus that we learn from. And that is the same status that the Quran receives in Islam. It is that powerful and that important to them. And so when we talk about the Quran, we're not talking about something that's equal to our Bibles. And so when we talk about the Quran, we're talking about something at the stature of Jesus. From that teaching in the Quran, that's why they will pray five times a day. That's why they will fast for Ramadan. That's why they will do these things because they are intentionally desiring to please Allah in order in hopes that one day they might enter into paradise. And so the Quran comes as an answer. And these people live it out sincerely. And I think it's the sincerity that's tough. It's that sincerity that makes it difficult to want to say, hey guys, uh, I don't think this is, uh, this is true. And the reason why I say that is, is because sincerity is one of those things as a culture we all want to believe in. We all want to think that, hey, sincerity is enough. But it's not enough. And I'll give you an example. Years ago, uh, we were in a time period in my family's life where honestly, it didn't matter what we tried to do as a family for a vacation, something went wrong. I mean, I'm talking, we got stuck in the middle of a New Mexican desert at one point. This was a smaller one. We'd gone to go whale watching. And so we had headed out on into, you know, out down to Balboa, left out there, down out into the Newport Harbor and out. Well, that day it was windy. I mean, I had never seen so much wind. We're like bobbing up and down. Kids are going like, you know, they're ready to throw up. And um, finally we hear from the captain, this isn't going to work. We're not going to see any, any animals and you're all going to get sick. So we're going back. So we turned it around. We'd been out for only 20 minutes, didn't even get past the buoy and back in we went. My kids are bummed, and they're like, oh, I want to go see whales. And I'm like, all right, all right. And as a good dad, we got the vouchers to come back. And as a good dad, I promised our kids we'd come back. And as a good dad, we came back a year and a half later. <laughs> <laughs> that day, we did come back. My daughter and I are getting out of the car, and my kids, we're all hanging out. And she goes, hey, do you know the last time we were here was Nate's birthday? My wife like, it was not Nate's birthday. The, uh, your cousins were with us. It was a Friday. We wouldn't, he, he didn't even want to go. It wouldn't have been his birthday. No, no, it was Nate's birthday, I swear. We were here last time at Nate's birthday. I'm like, it was not Nate's birthday. Nate didn't even want to do this. You wanted to do this. And she's just like, no, it's Nate's birthday. And she was sincerely like serious that it was Nate's birthday. And we're like, no, it is not Nate's birthday. It wasn't. It was a Friday. It wasn't Nate's birthday. She said, yes, it was a Friday and it was in February and it was Nate's birthday. And we're like, oh, fine. We pull out our phones. We grab it. We open it. I start scrolling to that space. I'm like, here's, okay, there you go. February. And we pulled up the date right there. There's a Friday. And look at that. See, it's Nate's birthday. <laughs> 
she was right. <laughs> Amazing how kids' minds remember things. I was so sincerely sure she was sincerely wrong, but she was so sincere she was right, and yet she was. Sincerity doesn't matter. When two people are absolutely sincere, you have to pull the phone out to prove it. And so what I'm saying is we can have our sincerity of our faith, and they can have the sincerity of their faith, but sincerity isn't enough. We have to step up to the third question and say, well, what's the proof? If we have this problem and solution, how do we show that it's true? And if you begin to go out into the, um, into the websites of all the Muslim apologists and guys like that, they will actually begin, this is driving me crazy, so give me a pause for a second, they will actually begin to con, um, lay out some arguments. And what I did is tried to take some of those because it comes down to one thing. Just as Christianity comes down to not whether your Bible's historically accurate and all those kind of things, I believe it is, and I believe it's inerrant, I believe all those things, and I believe that because Jesus believed that, and Jesus rose from the dead, and I go with the guy who rose from the dead. The, what, what the Bible itself says is that our faith rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Their faith rises and falls on whether the Quran is God's word or not. Because if it's God's word, then yeah, Muhammad's their prophet. If it's God's word, yes, we've overcome ignorance and we ought to submit to it. And so the tests that we have to look at is how would we show that the Quran is truly God's infallible, inerrant, perfect word given down to us? And so when you ask that question, they give you a couple of, they give you several different tests. The first test comes actually from the Quran itself. They say the Quran cannot be beat in beauty and in skill. What they mean by this is that the Quran in its Arabic, it, and it has to be in the Arabic because the Quran ceases to be the word of God when it leaves Arabic. It becomes an interpretation of the word of God. They believe you can only know it in the actual Arabic. And so when it's in the Arabic, they say nothing can beat the beauty of these poetry. Their argument was that back in Mecca when uh, Muhammad made these poems and proclaimed them on the spot, that actually what happened was there were poems, poets sitting around. And the poets who knew poetry, they, they couldn't produce a surah greater. In fact, it was during one of these times that this challenge that has been written in surah, or uh, that's what we would call chapter, the saying number two in verse 23, it says, And if you are in doubt about what we have set down, we being Allah through the angel Gabriel, have set down upon our servant Muhammad, then produce a surah like thereof and call upon your witnesses other than Allah if you should be truthful. This is the verse used often. They say, well, show us a surah, show us a poem in Arabic that is as great and as beautiful as any of them found in the Quran. Now, the situation here is a little difficult for me because, first of all, they, they claim nobody was able to do that at that time period. And yet, at the same time, they will argue nobody wrote anything down until after Muhammad had died. You see, originally, the problem was that Muhammad uh, was an oral culture. He would say, and people would memorize it, a few people scribble it on some bone or some fragments and stuff like this. And eventually, they had to pull it together and make a Quran, a book. But prior to that, no, they claimed that they, nobody wrote in Arabic. Arabic was invented for the fact to write down the Quran. And so if you had a poet stand up and give a poem that was going to be great, but you didn't, win the, you didn't win the battle of who was going to write down the words in the future, of course you're not going to get that situation. And so there's a sense of like blank history of a question mark of like, did something or did something not happen back there? We're just not quite sure, but there's room for skepticism. 
Now, we could just drop that, but the, the basic problem is that this is just a subjective test. It's not an objective test. I mean, if I believe that Psalm 23 is better poetry than Surah 5.23, I win. Says who? Well, I think Psalm 23 is better. In fact, what's interesting to me is that Psalm 23 was one of the psalms translated and put in with, Christian, with a bunch of Christian teaching in this thing called the Farqan al-Haq. The Furqan al-Haq, according to Nabil Qureshi, and I looked it up, and all of, his, all of it pans out, he said, that it's interesting, there were some Christians that took up the challenge in this verse, and they wrote Christian teachings and several of the Psalms in, the, in Arabic, and they called it the Furqan al-Haq, the true discernment. They included many teachings of the Psalms in this Arabic book, writing them in the style of Quran, and their results were so convincing that they read the text aloud, chanting in Quranic style. In the middle of Arab Muslim cities, many who passed would hear the recitation and, confusing it for the Quran, thank the readers for reciting it. Well, the apologists argued, oh, hold on, you can't say that. There are the uneducated Muslims who are walking by thinking this is the Quran just because they thought so. It doesn't mean it was actually good enough to be thought of as a Quran. That'd be like us walking around and somebody going, you know, early to bed, early to rise, makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's what the Bible says. No, that's what Ben Franklin says, not the Bible. And I get that. We can have this sense that people don't really know their book very well. And so they said, only Muslim scholars who truly know the Arabic, they would be able to test that. Well, unfortunately, there are Western scholars who know Arabic really well. They're called Orientalists in their study. And they claim that, no, most of the poems don't even make much sense. And they say, well, no, these guys are wrong because you need to be only a scholar who grew up speaking Arabic, and then you can really make the judgment. In other words, you have to be Muslim. And here's the problem with that. That's called confirmation bias. I claim the Quran is the best, and if I find anything that might be better, I must claim it's, the, it's not as best because otherwise now it's not the word of God. And so you confirm your own bias through a cyclical argument. And that's why this test just shouldn't be used. It's just not a good test. Now, I'm not saying the Quran's not the word of God. I'm just saying it isn't a good argument. And so let's set that argument aside. Push that test away. Say, let's, let's not use that one. Let's use it. Maybe there's another test. What if Allah was trying to get our attention? He would put something in the Quran to wake us up that this is truly from outside our space-time dimension. You know, I've seen these arguments for the, word, for the Bible and everything else. And so let's, what if there's something like that? And they go, there is, there is. And they say, the Quran knows things about science that nobody could have known sitting in an Arabian desert in the 6th century. Just not possible. One of their favorites is that they will bring out this one about the Big Bang. It's found in Surah 21, 30, and it says, Have those who disbelieve not considered that the heavens and the earth were a joined entity? And we separated them and made from the water every living thing. Now, they usually stop at the joined entity, and they say, see, this is a singularity. The heavens and the earth were one thing. Now, this isn't the word for unity like they use for God, Tawid. This is, this is the word for it was two things combined, were, used to be one combined together. And what's interesting is they go, see, but this is a singularity. Everything comes out from there. It explodes forth. It's the Big Bang. You're reading it right here. How would Muhammad have known that? Well, the only problem is, uh, as some have pointed out, this is in the context that he's making everything from water. Now, we've seen this before. 
If you know your Bible, you'll know that in Genesis chapter 1, God begins and seems to be hovering over the primordial waters in a sense. And then he, in verse 6, he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And he let it separate the waters from the waters. So there was this one combination of waters that separated out and he called the waters above the heavens and the waters below or the sky. And he called the waters below the sea. And you get these two, this separation of two things. In fact, this is very close and very likely what he is quoting. It's a rehearsal of what God did in Genesis. And so no, even if Muhammad did get this, it's a concept that was around for 2,000 years prior. And we know there were Jewish and Christian evangelists roaming the Arabian deserts, going to these towns, and so these concepts were likely very accessible and available for Muhammad. And so this is not probably one that we want to go with. The second one that they bring up is this one. This shows up on almost every page, is that the second half says, we made from water every living thing. Will they then not believe? And this is interesting because they, then they say, how could he have known? If you dive into the, very, into the very cells of human beings, you'll find that humanity is made and animals are made of 80% water. I mean, how would they have known this? We didn't even realize the cytoplasm had water in it until many, many, many years later. How did we get to this concept? And I go, that, that's pretty cool. But again, this is speaking from the Genesis passage. But here's the other thing. The cells aren't made of water. Notice it says he made from water every living thing. To, in order to have a cell, you need four, four items. Not Water is something that's in the cell, but it doesn't make the cell. You need a lipid, you need a nucleotide, you need a, uh, a carbohydrate, and then I always mess up, and you need proteins. Those four things are necessary to produce a cell. Because in your cell is this amazing carbohydrate membrane that surrounds you with its own code in and of itself, like DNA, with these lipid access points that allow ions in and out, along with an electrical charge field that goes around the entire thing so cells can identify other cells. Inside is an entire mechanical machine work made of very atomic, subatomic protein machines. They're moving stuff all over the place with a huge, giant library called dionucleic acid, or DNA, that is giving all this information out. And then there's some water. Here's the problem. Water is made of two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. A nucleotide, and as far as I know, a carbohydrate and a lipid, they need carbon. Carbon isn't in water. You can't make everything from water. And so when they make this statement, while it's echoing from the biblical passage in Genesis 1, it goes too far to make the claim, look, everything's made of water. And so we have this, we have this situation where most of the scientific stuff that's delivered is just like this. It, either the science doesn't go far enough, one, two, the passage is out of context, or three, they have uh, some information that was already around for thousands or hundreds of years prior so that he could have collected it from somewhere else. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't speak of science. That doesn't mean it doesn't speak to these things. It just means that these probably aren't the best arguments. So let's use the best argument. And the one argument that is said over and over again that is the best argument for the Quran to be the word of God is over and over, every single one states this, that the Quran was never changed, so it is the most perfect book. That it come from God, through Gabriel, to Muhammad, and then written and memorized, and was never changed. Therefore, you know you have the very words of God. Now, 
I could get into the history and tell you about the caches found of old Qurans with, with writings and stuff that are different. We could talk about what the Hadith says and how some goats ate some Quranic statements. They never found them and other ones were forgotten. And then, so there's stuff out there. But let's just say that that's right. Let's just say that they've passed down a perfect Quran. It's never, ever, ever been corrupted. I'm okay with that. But I still don't think it helps. Because there are some very serious issues in the Quran itself. And I want to respect this, but the bottom line is we have to look at these things. And several of the problems is that the Quran states things that are known to history and it speaks about them wrongly. I'll give you an example. In my cursory reading through the Quran in the last few weeks, to run easily into some known Bible stories. Same Bible stories you and I grew up with are in the Quran. One of them being the story of Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he, it, it gets it right. They wanted a king, even though Allah did not want them to have this king. And so he gives them this king, Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. All these things were right. And he went out, and he had great war, and he battled people, and he was winning. And he came up to Goliath, and he was going to attack this army where Goliath was. But at first, Allah told him, go down to the the brook. And so they went down to the brook and some of the army had to scoop up water and drink the water one way and the other guys drank the water the other way. And he eliminated the army down to a very few number of people because of how they drank out of the, out of the brook. That's Gideon's story. It's not Saul's story. And so they conflate Gideon and assert him into Saul in a very clear passage that we know is, we have clear manuscripts that date pre-Jesus with those in them. And so the Quran gets some basic Bible stories wrong. But then the thing that, that I think is the most difficult are the last two. First and foremost is, if I was God and I was trying to call people away from a false religion in Christianity, then I would understand exactly what they believed about their God and I would argue against it. And so when the Quran tries to say, you cannot use the word Trinity, don't say God is three, God is one, you think that, man, if that's a big issue, they would have that down. And yet the problem is the Quran misrepresents the Trinity completely. And I'll show you this. It starts in Surah 5. This is the main passage where it teaches Islam to, Muslims to deny and not say God is three, but God is only one. It starts here. They have certainly disbelieved who say Allah is the third of three. So there's a representation of three who they claim are God. And there is no God except one God. So you got Allah. Who are these other two they added to Allah? What's going on here? Don't, don't add anybody to them. And if they do not desist from what they are saying, there will surely afflict disbelievers among them a painful punishment. Allah will punish us for believing in a triune God, is what it appears to be saying. But there is Allah, who is God, and then there's these two others. He, so he's a third of three. Well, who are these other two? It goes on to say, and a few verses later, the Messiah, son of Mary, was not but a messenger. Okay, so he's the Messiah, but he's a prophet just like all the other prophets. Other prophets, other messengers have passed on before him, and his mother was a supporter of the truth. They both used to eat food. Well, thanks for letting me know that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Why is that in the Quran? The, art, the answer is why that's in the Quran is because God doesn't eat food. It was, it's one of their main arguments. Look how we make clear to them the signs that they're wrong. Then look how they are deluded. God doesn't eat food. Jesus ate food. Mary ate food. Why are you telling me Mary ate food? Well, again, if you want to say Jesus wasn't God and he ate food, why are you talking about Mary? 
In fact, it clears it up later in verse 117. And beware the day when Allah will say, O Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to the people, take me and my mother as deities beside Allah? The Trinity as laid out in the, in the Quran is the Father, Son, and Mary. Not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they believe that the Father and Mary had come together. We believe, they believe, we believe, the Father and Mary come together in copulation to produce the Son. And that we are like the polytheists that surrounded them. What you have here is, is something that's fundamentally flawed. That if, you're, if they're going to argue against the very other religion they're claiming got corrupted, God would get this right. He would know it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He would know that this is the Trinity and this is what we shouldn't believe. But the Father, Son, and Mary, clearly the Quran is stating something that is historically false and actually not held to by any of these weird cults that existed around them. The other problem is that they deny the death of Jesus. In fact, that's, that is found in a lot of these little pamphlets and stuff, but it comes from one particular surah, and this surah is found here in Surah 4, and it says, And for their saying, Indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Messenger of Allah, and they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in no doubt about it. Now, I did not change this text. This is what you get when you um, go to the Quran, Unity, uh, Unity of Quran, uh, and it's their own interpretations. It's a, it's a Quran online that will translate into English. You can look at the actual text, and then it shows you the translation. So this is theirs, and they literally claim another was made to resemble him. This is the passage that when you talk to average general Muslims, they will believe that it was not Jesus who was crucified, it was Judas Iscariot. And he was made to look like Jesus by Allah. And so what happens then is, unfortunately, they believe that Allah tricked the disciples and everybody else around to think that Jesus was crucified. So when Jesus appeared... Fine, because he was going to ascend to the Father, they, they go, oh, he's alive, he resurrected. Now the issue here is then they're blaming that Allah is the creator of Christianity through a deception. And it's very difficult. And so some scholars who in Islam have backed off this, but they know it's here and they don't know how to interpret it right. They've come up with others, other ideas to try to handle it. But the bottom line is it clearly states that Jesus was not crucified. And yet here's our trouble. Tacitus, a Roman, uh, Roman um, uh, he was a Roman uh, historian who was actually overseeing the cults of the various uh, Roman movement. In talking about Christianity, after, the, after Nero had burned half the city down, um, was talking about that event. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hated, on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. So this is where Nero said, ah, the Christians burned the city of Rome. I didn't do it. And so he crucified a bunch of them. Notice the most exquisite tortures. In fact, he crucified them and lit them up as torches to um, make sure his uh, little garden parties were nice and bright. He goes on to say, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. That's the Roman way of talking about crucifixion because he detested the conversation so badly. During the reign of Tiberius, at the hand of one of the procura our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now, we know Pontius Pilate existed. We found his name in the dirt. It's, uh, there's inscriptions of him. We continue to find information about Pontius Pilate in historical writings. 
Next thing we know, we got consequent. We have not Tacitus, but now we have Josephus, a Jewish writer writing after the Jewish wars. This is later in about uh, 90 to 120 AD. He says, now there was a, at this time, oh, Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and many of Greek origin. Some of you guys, I'll pause right here real quick. This is the most conservative writing of this section. There are other writings that like make Josephus attest that Jesus rose from the dead and all those kind of things. This is the most conservative from Paul Meyer, who's done a lot of research on the subject. And this is how it continues. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. Historians find that section the most plausible because Jesus being crucified is a well-known historical event. I mean, Matthew, one of his followers, writes that, in, that they had crucified him and divided the garments among him. He writes this roughly around probably late 50s, early 60s, 63 AD. Mark writes in the early 50s, and it was in the third hour when they crucified him. He's writing from the preaching of Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. Luke, who's an eyewitness, he's researching and discussing it with the eyewitnesses and taking documents. He's writing probably roughly in the mid-60s, states, and when they came to the place that is called the Skull, or Golgotha, or we know it as Calvary, there they crucified him and the, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. John, one of his closest disciples, writing just before 70 AD, writes, there, they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Paul, who would be a convert to Christianity after persecuting from the perspective of Judaism, came to state this in his document from the 50s as he writes a letter to the Corinth. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And what we have is over and over and over again, the historical documents declaring Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified. Scholars, believing and skeptical, all agree he existed and all agree that he died on the cross. Until 600 years later, when the Quran comes along and says, no, he didn't. And again, once again, we have to believe the Quran is the word of God in order to interpret history according to it. Instead of history speaking for itself and confirming, because we can't have it say something different. And so the situation that occurs is that you have to assume the truthfulness of the Quran before you can prove the truthfulness of the Quran. That's circular logic. And ultimately, the, I believe that these two things, especially about the Trinity and the death of Jesus, regardless of whether it was changed or not, and I don't think it was, let's just say that, shows that it cannot be the Word of God. God would have these facts correct. God would have these things down. And therefore, Islam cannot answer their own problem, which is that we are ignorant of the ways of God. Now, I believe this is a problem. I believe humanity is ignorant of the ways of God. I believe that it is a difficult and horrible struggle that we wrestle around on this earth trying to know what God's will is and what he wants of us and how we should do something. And there are people out there dying in depression and frustrated about where to go and what to do. But Christianity answers the problem because what keeps us from knowing God is our sin, not just ignorance. It is our sin that keeps us from God, as we stated, and Christianity comes in and solves the problem by removing our sin and giving you access to God. I didn't say this. This is what the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said. As he's prophesying to Israel that they're all going to be kicked out because they've broken God's covenant, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I was faithful to them. They were unfaithful to me. I'm going to make a new covenant. What is this? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, not out here in another person, not to be written down in another book. No, I'm going to give them, um, I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He, he brings it out even clearer. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each other and his brother saying, know the Lord. I need to run around and say, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. Here's the book and you need to know the Lord. No, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest. The access to God is gone. It's not just to the priests. It's not just to the rich. It's not just to those who have. No, it is given access to everyone to know God, to have a connection with God, to understand God. How is this possible? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The sin is removed. The access to God is present. He is present today. My friends, we do not need to be running to all kinds of other things. There's no need for us as Christians to be ignorant of God. You have his very presence with you. Jesus, riffing on this idea, said it this way, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth who is, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Yes, there's ignorance. They don't know him. I find it fascinating, the one Jesus promised, the helper to come, the Holy Spirit, who you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you is the very one of the Trinity they forgot. The very one that overcomes our ignorance is the one who dwells in you, making you the temple of God, giving you access to the presence of God so that when you enter into prayer, you have come to the face of God through Jesus Christ. That when you dive into the word, you are hearing the words of God through Jesus Christ. He is there. He speaks to you. He answers your prayers. He listens to you. He calls you his sons and daughters. You are not far from him. The only thing that keeps you from him is not going to be with him. Church, we need to step back into our times of prayer, back into the word of God, back into not just knowing about God, but knowing God. And when you know him and you sense his presence and he answers your prayers and he gives you the wisdom at your work and he gives you the guidance that you look for and he becomes your God, there is a power that is there. There's a presence that is there that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's not just reciting the words of the Bible. It's not just quoting things. It is knowing him. And this is why the ignorance is gone. I want to encourage you. If you're like, I want to keep going this. I feel stalled. I feel stuck. Get into, get into the love keystone. Allow it to begin to retrain you in prayer and the basic disciplines of the faith to develop. And you can grab one of the green cards and let us know. Just saying, hey, yeah, I want to get involved in that. I want to be a part of that. But what else can you do? Guys, we can be connecting with our Muslim friends. We can get to know our Muslim neighbors. And we can begin to love them and care about them. You don't have to be scared of them. They're not out to hurt us. They want to love God. And we want to help them love God. We believe we have an answer to the ignorance that they are struggling to overcome. Yes, they're devout. But they're going in a direction that honestly they need a sacrifice. 
And maybe you don't know how to bring that in. Maybe you don't know how to build that case. We've given you guys a small thing on our app. Uh, if you want to go there, it's in our resource section for this sermon. It will lay out a whole bunch of information on how to begin to build that relationship and, and have opportunities as you learn about Islam from Muslims and not just from a crazy pastor on a stage or something like that. You get an opportunity to build a relationship and bring the gospel into bear. And it's, it's, a saddle, it's from Saddleback, so it's a, it's a great resource that you can use there. Download that, and it's available to you. The, but the bottom line is that, guys, we can love these people. We can share the gospel with these people. There's so many opportunities that we have to bring the message that that ignorance is overcome through Jesus Christ. He has borne away our sins. We are set free to know him, to experience him, to walk in him, to serve for him and with him, and watch him change the lives of others around us. And really, honestly, the question comes down to them, well, you know, what do I do? Well, the scriptures indicate in John 3.16 that God loves the world, that he gave his son, that whoever would believe, now that word means to trust. Again, I'll take up this plane as the illustration. If you're willing to trust in the laws of aerodynamics, you're willing to trust the pilot and the mechanics who've checked the plane and are taking you somewhere, you don't get on to drive it to get you there. You get on and you trust the pilot knows where he's taking you. You get on and trust that they've given you the promises and the guarantees that God has loved you. He has borne your sins away because just as Andy and Halid were standing there on that train station, and he turned that question on me. Where would I go according to your faith? I had to look at him with all the compassion I could find. I told him this. If you don't have a sacrifice for your sins, you will not enter into paradise. Because our sins keep us from God. He looked at me and he thanked me. He said, I want to I thank you for being honest. None of your missionaries have told me that. And here's the thing, we need to be bold enough and loving enough to stand firm on what we believe, that Jesus Christ's resurrection has overcome the problem, the proof that we are looking for, which is our sin keeps us from God, it keeps us ignorant of God, and now you have access to God if he's removed it from you. But do you have a sacrifice for sin? Do you have someone who can take and bear your sin away that you trust? Because that's what Jesus offers he offers you that forgiveness of sins, that transformation, the connection with the eternal life who is God, that you would know him and walk with him. But now it's in your corner. Would you bow your heads with me? You may find yourself here today and you have never received Jesus. And I want to tell you lovingly that without a sacrifice for your sin, without one to take it, absorb it, and bear it away, heaven cannot be accessed. God is going to stay distant. But if today you would receive what Jesus has given you by bearing your son on the cross and removing it from you, and you trust that, the access to God becomes instant. The wall is gone. He draws near to us as we draw near to him. And now you have the opportunity to begin a journey of eternal life with God. You know what's beautiful is that one day when you die and you step into eternity and you, fa and you stand before God, he's not going to keep you out because he doesn't keep out his sons and daughters. He doesn't keep out his friends. A relationship with God that goes on for eternity begins now. And it begins by you receiving that sacrifice that he's given you. 
And if today you know you need to receive that for the forgiveness of your sins, to be set free and have access to God, I want to give you a chance to do that. It's as simple as just telling him, yes, God, I want to receive that. Yes, God, I need that. I'd like to walk you through a prayer that lets you say that. Would you let me know that that's where you're at right now just by putting your hand up and I'll walk you through that prayer from up here. By putting your hand up high enough that I can see it, I, I can acknowledge you and then we'll just keep, we'll just move into that prayer. God, for those in the room who may not have their hands up, I just ask that you would indeed just guide them as they, as they pray this prayer with you. Just pray this with me. God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. And I ask that you would forgive me. I trust that Jesus is my sacrifice who takes my sin away. I trust that Jesus rose from the dead that I could know you. Please come in my life and let me have that relationship with you now. In Jesus' name, amen.